All right, welcome back to part two of our special on Leon Trotsky with our Soviet polymath, Steph Thomas. Well, <laughs> yeah, so continuing sort of Steph's, well, magnum opus and labor of love on, on Trotsky. I mean, sort of the first part has sort of blown both Nathan and I away. We're sort of yeah, like dumbfounded at the level, at the level, of, yeah. uh, level of knowledge and detail. is just amazing. Um, <laughs> so we got up to Trotsky being exiled, basically. So he was... Um, He's obviously fallen out with Stalin because he keeps mm. sort of snipping at him and, and sort of uh, criticizing the revolution and has been exiled first to, as I said, one of the Stan staff. And he's, um, did he spend much time in Turkey? Yeah, a fair bit. I mean, like, it's, he, he sort of was constantly trying to get back to Western Europe because, like, like we were talking about before. Can't get good of, wine or whatever in Turkey. Yeah. He's just moaning about He's just like, like, I've never, like, really found anything about how much he used to drink. But, like, apparently it was a fair bit, so I'm guessing that must have had something to do with that. But, like, um, yeah, he just saw that as the centre of the world, which obviously at the time it roughly was. So he was trying to get asylum in Britain, denied that. Eventually he ends up in France and then basically makes the move to Mexico. But all the time he's uh, just constantly writing. Like I said, he's like, um, it is like a compulsive behaviour for him. He has no other way of making sense of the world. He's lost, like we said, you know, a ministerial position in the government of the largest country on the earth, you know, the first self-declared socialist republic to take place over, like, you know, anywhere outside of just in in a part of Paris. And he's lost all that. He's been sort of pushed out to this. And... Um, yeah, it's pretty heartbreaking, actually. Yeah, it's, it's very strange. I mean, it's like the amount of time and effort that the old Bolsheviks de- um, dedicated to this cause is unbelievable. Mm. I mean, even Stalin, obviously, I don't want to, no big fan of his, but even Stalin was, you know, robbing trains and robbing banks to fund the Bolshevik Party. It's just basically out of ideological. Yeah, a life, a life of sacrifice yeah. from all of them, basically. And, and, dis- and discipline. Yeah, and basically, as time's going on, more and more of the old Bolsheviks are either dying of natural causes like lightning or just being killed. Mm. So they're, they're being. Um, executed or forced to sign weird confessions mm. um, around this time. The sort of theory to explain why Trotsky's been exiled and things is that he's been allying with fascists in Germany. Yeah. So there's show trials and things. I mean, Bukharin, who previously allied with Stalin as part of the sort of centre of... Um, of the party, so the leading theoretician of the Stalin faction is killed, goes down sort of denouncing Stalin and sort of long live the revolution. Like, I used to have, there used to have this, they used to go, you know, we used to go to Marxism conference, you've obviously been once, I've been, I think, once as well. But like, you'd have these bookstores, which are just dead people's books. So be, you know, whoever's children would just sell off their communist books um, as part of, you know, for pennies, basically, just to pass on the knowledge. And I used to have Max Schachtman's books about the, um, the show trials. And it's a brilliant book. Max Schachtman um, later on ended up using his Trotskyism. He was head of the Socialist Works Party in America. And he sort of later on branched out into basically just supporting all of America's wars, which is um, something that... Bizarre development. Yeah, I mean, it's like, it's one of the sort of creepy and 
onerous things about being a Trotskyist is that so many of them just end up being... Yeah, that is weird, isn't it? Yeah, it's not good. It's <laughs> a very strange... Ten- and when you look at the amount of, like, Aronov- David Aronovich and yep, things like that, Aronovich. and all, some of the worst ghouls in, like, the British media yeah. sort of ecosystem um, <laughs> have all started out, as some say, just Trotskyist, which is... Yeah, it's that's... grim as hell. I mean, like, it's, like, the weirdest ones, obviously, being the Hitchens brothers. Yeah, Like, of if course, you, like, yeah. smush the two Hitchens together, you'd almost get, like, an actual Marxist. So you'd have, like, sort of Christopher with, like, his sort of libertine, anti-religious views and things, who just happens to love incinerating people. And you've got, like, Peter Hitchens, who, like, write, you know, about, like, how Britain should withdraw from Afghanistan and how we're sort of decaying yeah. empire and um you know we should be called to account for our crimes and then the next thing you'd be like i can't believe this the markers on the motorway are in kilometers not miles <laughs> <laughs> what is this? yeah so yeah it's it's no good i mean like the sort of well what was our website wasn't it drink soaked and g <laughs> so trotskyist for war wasn't it was that the name yeah, of the website he was like the, basically galloway who comes from a different tradition which is basically aligned with the ussr the sort of fellow traveller, the yeah, classical yeah. fellow traveller, like accused um, called uh, Chris Hitchens uh, drinks all former pop, uh, Trotsky's Poppinjay. Did he write uh, the only thing I know um, Who calls someone a Poppinjay like? Yeah. <laughs> he said like the only thing you know I on about, uh, like, disagree with in that description is being drink soaked. He's like I can handle my drink. <laughs> Hitchens. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean people, people still love Hitchens. I think he's a freak like. Well it's um, it's Depressing he's a good writer, though. Well, he, he was, was a, a really right good. Man. He was a really good writer. <laughs> it's like with like the Trotsky tradition. I mean, this is something that Trotsky, as he starts to arrange his own counter internationals, so or basically as we were talking about before, the split between Marx's lot and the anarchists was the first and second internationals, and the second international, the Labour Party, the German SDP, and the Communist Party into the third international, the Communist Party, Lenin and Trotsky, then just Trotsky for the fourth. As he's arranging this, he cannot get over the freaks and weirdos that he's attracting. So, so, where, yeah. where, is, so where is he now? He's when in he... France, I think, if off, off the top of my head, I think 1930 to about 1930. 334, 35 maybe. And he sets up the fourth international. Yeah. So he's he's just as a founding conference of the fourth international, but he's just like yeah, he's just stunned by the weirdos. Because obviously <laughs> <laughs> he's dealing and like I am one of these people myself, man. That was that was what I used to be, and I'm happy and proud of that type of period of my life. But he just can't get over the loons that he's dealing with. There's a particular bit in Mexico which is like there's so many bits in his life where I'm just like, I wouldn't have said that at this exact moment. Where he's like in Mexico and he's saying, oh, it's really good here. It's like a non-imperialist country. I can hide out here. It's good. Yeah. I can, you know, I've got some independence. And he's just like, thing is, though, these Mexican communists, man, I can't work with these. These Mexican communists are terrible. And he like assembles like a bodyguard of like sort of American Trotskyists and different people around him. And it's like, I wouldn't have slagged off like the entire yeah. communist movement that's of Mexico. That's just taking you in, like. Yeah, that's just taking you in. It's like you know, put literally put you up. I wouldn't have done that right now. But he's just like a compulsively honest, but also like compulsively, yeah, um, accidentally rude bloke. So there's that going on. So around this time, basically, he's made just some theoretical contributions. Uh, he sort of works on this idea of the United Front with the emergence of fascism. Obviously, fascism itself emerges in a relatively marginal country in Italy at the end of the First World War. But then as it sort of takes hold in Spain and then in 
particularly in Germany because obviously that's he speaks German and also yes an advanced country he has a deep knowledge of the German workers movement so he's can see this coming and he's obviously appalled by this so this is where he really sets up the idea of the United Front. Now, the sort of distinction between the United Front and the Popular Front is something, It's you know, it's it's a really boring hack joke, and it's one you hear constantly, but the the Life of Brian thing with, oh, uh, yeah. you know, the People's Front of Judea, Judea's People's Front, I still don't fully understand the distinction between the Popular Front and the United Front. As far as I understand it, the United Front is aimed towards a particular set of actions or a particular set of goals, it is united from top to bottom. So you have, if you're going to arrange, for example, an anti-fascist demonstration or yeah. anti-fascist movement in the UK, it wouldn't be worth it to go, well, you know, Corbyn and his lot or, you know, God, Gordon Brown and his lot are terrible reactionaries. We can't possibly involve them, but we'll have random social democratic workers or random labour supporting workers. It's not enough to have that. You have to try and strive for unity with the top of whichever party you're working with and with the rank and file of that. But you have to it has to be sort of limited to a specific set of goals and it has to be the the two parties or whoever many parties involved have to be completely independent throughout. So this is what he counterposes first in distinction to the policy of um I think what's called the third period. Mm-hmm. So the idea that um, and you know, there's there is a germ of truth in this. The yeah, because this, this is this is actually coming back now in a big way in, on the internet, isn't it? In like social media, that, but like the, I don't know why, but mud is being thrown at communists and stuff for aid and abet in the rise of Nazism in Germany, basically. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's two ways you can slice it. Basically, you can say, I mean, the other thing to bear in mind about the German example, like Trotsky in his writings on the United Front in reference to Germany, talks about when they were working against the Black Hundreds in Russia, against the programists. He says, we would take money from wealthy Jewish businessmen, we would take money from anyone, we would work with the devil and his grandmother. Right. So that's a specific phrase that he uses, anyone, anyone to stop fascism. It is that important, because it is, as we've obviously seen historically, the end of workers' self-organisation. That's the entire point of fascism, is to abolish through force the distinction between worker and capital and to unite them within one national body. So with this, got to bear in mind that 10 years before this, or sort of in the run-up to Hitler's rise, the, the social democrats in Germany had literally killed the leaders of the yeah. communist movement. This is not... <laughs> Thrown in like, the Rhine, weren't they? Yeah. yeah. It's not like there's no bad blood here. It's an extremely difficult thing to be able to look at people who would, you know, defend those actions or say, oh, the thing is, well, that's all water under the bridge or literally, (laughs) you know, unfortunate turn of phrase in the event. (laughs) But that's what he's arguing for them to do. So he's arguing for them. The Stalinist zigzag or the sort of policy of the Comintern after Trotsky's expulsion is to say, well, there is no distinction between the German SDP and the Nazis. Now, that's kind of... Yeah, to denounce everyone as social fascists, right? Yeah, it's a broad brush. But, I mean, like, the the, the slogan of the time was after hitler S. So, like, yeah. basically the idea was that fascism was... It is an inherently unstable formation. It can't survive. And then after that, fasc- the growth of fascism is proof of capitalism's crisis. After that, we will take charge. However, <laughs> that doesn't... Um, didn't work like that unfortunately so then they sort of moved back 
towards a broader thing. I mean, and this was the policy elsewhere as well, what they called the popular front, which was essentially to, in the face of rising fascism, panic, overcorrect, and then sort of try and fuse those two parties, sort of fuse the communist parties with the Labour parties of whichever country. To the extent that, I mean, during the Second World War, the leader of the the American Communist Party just went up and said, why don't we just fuse into the Democrats? which is bewildering, but it's, again, this thing of just, well, you know, it's the exact opposite problem. It's like, well, you can't act independently then. What happens if an Mm. SDP government gets in and they're terrible? So then you've fused your your sort of fortunes to them. You You know that reformism can't really work. You know that you will never be able to get... You know, sufficient reductions in the working day and sort of increase in social price. You won't be able to get that through reformism. We've all lived through like a long period of reformist government in this country in our lifetimes, and it hasn't been good, has it? No, it wasn't ideal. <laughs> so basically, he's spends the thirties sort of militating against those two ideas. Some, you know, the the sort of twinned, rhyming but opposite ideas that, well, the Labour Party are just as bad as, you know, the British Union and fascists. And, well, the thing is, there's no difference between communists and the Labour Party, really. We've all got the same goals, so why don't we all just do exactly the same thing? This is, like, it's kind of... When he starts to try and build a party from the ground up, like I said, he's astonished by the just, you know, drunks, layabouts, freaks that he's attracting... And I say that as like a definite drunk about the freak as myself. Um, and he's basically, I mean, this gets towards when he starts to sort of not degenerate theoretically as such, but this is when he's grasping a bit. So basically, when he joined the Russian Social Democratic and Labour Party, it was, you know, maybe 20, 30 years old. He obviously played a large part in building it up, but there were also people who stayed behind. There were all these hundreds of thousands of people, um, or far less than that, sorry, a couple of thousand of people who kept the party organisation going for decades alongside him. And he was basically either in prison or, you know, in Geneva and just having either a terrible time or a very nice time being like a sort of leading light of theory for this larger workers' movement. You've got to bear in mind, obviously, thousands of workers were paying his wages, basically, for this entire time. Yeah. Through, like, um, the trade unions or, you know, through workers' newspapers that were giving work when he was a journalist. Whereas when the Third International, when he's trying to set... Fourth International, when he's trying to set that up, he hasn't got those resources. So, in amongst this criticism of the sort of path taken by the Stalinist parties and the sort of... Just, again, inconceivable horror that is falling generally all around the world. Like, I mean, you've got this never-ending recession in America. You've got um, increasing repression of Stalin, you know, of Stalinism in the Soviet Union itself. One of the saddest sort of an underexplored historical stories from that period is people would move to the USSR to escape, say, Nazi Germany or to escape, um, you know, what James Connolly said, 
like the carnival of reaction in Ireland, you know, you'd have Irish communists and they'd go, I'm going to defect to the Soviet Union. A perfectly logical thought when it's supposed to be the leading light of workers' revolution in the world. And then they would end up in prison or executed because they couldn't be trusted because they were foreign. I'm fairly sure there was a Welsh... I'm sure... I think Doug actually said that in his episode on the Communist Party in Wales. I'm fairly sure there was a Welsh communist that went over and actually... (laughs) end up disappearing or got killed which is yeah it's, it's, yeah. it's just bad thinking about Kim Philby had the right idea going over in, like the, <laughs> in the 50s or whatever and just living a sort of yeah, life man. of like quiet quite, life, quite in, nice it, life yeah. in the Soviet in the Moscow suburbs or whatever well so like he was Philby sorry digression again, but <laughs> Phil, Philby like basically was like his deep cover was just being like an overt fascist in the British press which was amazing <laughs> to me just being like like finding all these reports from like Spain just going like oh these nationalists are terrible all their atrocities you know other way around Republicans terrible all their atrocities it's like I couldn't I don't know if, like if for some broader idea of pro-enemy revolution I'd be happy with people thinking I was a fascist for like two fucking yeah, decades yeah there was, there, 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 was um, there was I read uh, reading a little excerpt on Philby when he was um spying and yeah. he was just saying he was just like openly walking out with like briefcases and stuff <laughs> but because he was like you know this mega posh lad people were just like yeah he's good egg um mm. he's like you're yeah there's like secret it's like secrets branded on the suitcase or whatever <laughs> <laughs> just did it for years and years and years it's a fucking absolutely preposterous like, kind of like what you got there then <laughs> It, is, yeah. it really is. Like, what you got there then, Kim? He's like, oh, all the government secrets, give a wink. Like, oh, Kim. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Have a good weekend, you. It's like, um, what is it? Like, I, sorry, again, right, I don't want to go too far topic, but Jesus, man. Like, the idea of like people being like sincerely, like, unionist, with, like, in this country, which I have seen, like, more and more of, particularly, like, there's this sort of phobia of any kind of political change that you get off some of the FPP people. And people being like, Oh yeah, I desperately want to be in this country where like there's a, like an actively drunk man who is prime minister, like a man who's permanently drunk now, who's prime minister solely because he went to the school that the last prime minister went to, I know. or the I one prior to him. It's just like, oh yeah, no, I want to be part of this. I want my country back. Like, <laughs> let's like, rewind the clock. Was it 2016? Yeah, 2012. Yeah. 2012. Like, 2012 the Olympics. And let's have Groundhog Day in the Olympic ceremony. It is. I mean, what I will say about the current period is like, I'll never cease to be amazed. At people's breaking point and like yeah, uh, yeah, w- yeah. at the point at which people get radicalized and the fact that you see on social media people actually losing their shit that like the queen didn't intervene and, and then that woman <laughs> that woman it was like writing letters woman was encouraging people to write letters to the queen yeah um, yeah because, that was Amy McKennedy that was and like yeah. and I think yeah and as you said like just re- these people who <laughs> you genuinely can't believe exist like and, and you yeah. think this is your breaking point now like the queen hasn't intervened and yeah, like, she's been like but uh, what have they been yeah they obviously like one, so incredibly removed from uh, i would say one normal of, like, life the weird like stories of like the last 30 years in britain again entirely off topic right? no, but it's good. just like basically since neoliberalism since sort of social mobility stalled after the post-war boom, you've had this enormous rehabilitation of poshness. So Emma Kennedy, I think she was like in um, university and she was like in the footlights a lot. Yeah, with, like, yeah, um, yeah, Richard Herring and uh, Stuart Lee. But like the previous generation of footlights with people like Stephen Fry and Hugh mm, Laurie. And, yeah. and it's like, there's some tiny, completely irrational part of my brain that just goes, now oh, Stephen Fry and Hugh Laurie, man, that is the exact reason why we have Boris Johnson. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's literally no other reason. Just like where poshness became like an identity in and of itself. Yeah. It's a similar vibe to like the sort of late 20s or the early 30s where you've got like these 
bewilderingly inbred aristocrats in charge of things in Britain. Mm. And it's just like the ways in which working class people used to raise themselves up have now completely gone. Oh, yeah. They've, they've stalled. They, they, that is ended now. We have had, I think, Therese, I don't know how posh Theresa May is, right? But we've had like nearly a decade of just she, being governed by Etonians, right? She went to um, Eton. <laughs> I don't know. They take girls. I don't know. Man. Oh no, she went. With, no, she don't. She, Female. Sorry, um, she went to uh, yeah. <laughs> lady. Lady. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, um, she went to um, shared out the know, back. Ox- like. She went to Oxford. Yeah, oh, yeah, well, yeah, yeah, like, yeah. So, so. yeah. Even if you don't go to Wheaton, you're gonna they will have gone to Oxford. Like yeah, <laughs> like part of the reason why like I want you know in varying degrees depending on what side they want get out of the bed or whatever. Like the reason I want like Welsh independence or Scottish independence or socialist revolution or something is literally to see what anything would like be like if it was any different I know yeah. I don't know what life is like without these pricks ruling me man yeah. I genuinely have never had a moment but that. that's what we were talking about earlier like going <laughs> further off topic is that's like how kind of like you know the Soviet Union now has become like you know um romanticized in the sense yeah, because yeah. you can't see anything beyond neoliberalism now so yeah, like, yeah. oh well okay there's repression and like some shortages but like at least everyone had a job like, <laughs> yeah, and look yeah. at the size of the apartments what yeah. i would also say is that um but that you know it is important that you know the idea that things are going wrong rapidly with the revolution yeah, yeah. um you correct me if i'm wrong Steph. i'm fairly sure trotsky would have been like well let's just a yeah, because what is used by centrists and and how I still call them, I hate them very deeply. But like <laughs> centrist people who are basically happy with the status quo, but you know are happy yeah, to have yeah, nods yeah. to sort of progressive causes, whatever, without f- ever trying to change anything, is that you know this idea of the road to hell is paved with good intentions is still mm. the yeah. things that went wrong are still used as an, a reason to basically say that actually nothing can ever get any better than this and there's no yeah. point even trying. I mean, but I'm fairly sure Trotsky wouldn't have turned around and said, well, we may as well not have bothered then. Yeah, I mean, there's like, during this period, during when he's in Mexico and when he's sort of, there's an American philosopher called, oh, oh God, blank oh, on the first name, He becomes his mates, doesn't he? Yeah, he becomes yeah, his friend. Dewey. So it's like, he's like a liberal philosopher. Mm, John left, is, yeah? Yeah, I think so. He's like sort of, um, he, he institutes because basically... The Stalinist show trials are sort of being reported uncritically and stuff in the party press. He institutes like a parallel trial to try and sort of establish Trotsky's guilt or innocence. But in so doing, his attempt is he's be saying like, see, these are the liberal norms that you want to get rid of. <laughs> these sort of jury trials and things. And he's trying to sort of shame Trotsky. Mm into sort of accepting that like that yeah yeah idea of a revolutionary break or the idea of people's justice or sort of you know workers militia being the police or something yeah which is what what you know the one of the vital interventions of the russian revolution the vital inventions he saw trotsky writes his book called their morals and hours and in that he basically has an extended goal I think um, John Dewey and Bertrand Russell. But basically Bertrand Russell says, well, we can't possibly have a British revolution because Britain's sea country will just be immediately be encircled by naval fleets of different countries and we'll starve to death. And Trotsky's just going, have a go on it. Just have a try. <laughs> yeah. have a try. Like, yeah. You know, you can't say this. You can't say this without trying. There is no way that you will know. There is no way you'll know whether workers can rule. There is no way you'll know whether you will free people from the scourge of work or the scourge of, you know... Militarism. Yeah, I mean, if you think about the very... Yeah, if you think about the the achievements of the Soviet Union, I don't want to start, 
you know, I mean, the team of the Soviet Union or anything under my breath. Or Play it in there. Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> I'd love that song, man. Yeah. It's banging. Yeah. It's a banging tune. My grandfather had something similar in his funeral. Really? Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's, it's an amazing tune. It's like a really distressed... Came back from the dead to listen to it one more time. Oh, it's lovely, man. <laughs> There's a song that was written the year before Trotsky was born called You Were Fallen in a Fateful Struggle, which is like a funeral hymn of the Russian Social Democratic and Labour Party. It's like an atheist hymn, and it's like, oh, even though you were imprisoned and shot and just punched in the balls and stuff. Oh, it's terrible. It's like the saddest song I've ever heard. Anyway, basically, the achievements of the Soviet Union were so strange for that period, for that country, at that particular time, at that you know, after this cataclysmic war. I mean, like, I don't want to seem self-interested here, but they legalised homosexuality, they legalised abortion. Women's rights, women's suffrage. Yeah, it's astonishing. Yeah, so it's far ahead of anything. Yeah. yeah, Still. Yeah, and it's bewildering. Maternity rights. Yeah. And you get that sort of rolled back. During the 30s period we're talking about, this starts to get rolled back. Stalin starts doing things like issuing medals for women for having, you know, enormous numbers of, numbers of children being yeah. barefoot and pregnant. This sort of very crude idea, which was later taken up by people like Ceausescu, the idea of, mm. like, the crude accretion of human capital. Just like, well, you know, we're going to ban abortion, we're going to make it extremely difficult for you. Um, not to not have babies of whatever way that sentence works or we're going to reward you for having loads of babies the legalisation of homosexuality is repealed so now people can no longer love who they want to love and it's an absolute shit show all over that part of Europe <laughs> it's just this decline and then in Britain and America and France you've got just economic crisis just perpetually throughout that period which basically leads us up nicely to the Second World War, doesn't it? So, Trotsky's argument at this point is that basically what socialist parties need to devise is something called a transitional demand. Now, this is probably one of the weakest parts of his theory. So, basically, what he says is, well, what you do, see, you build together, like, a list of demands, and those demands will essentially serve as like a bridge between capitalism and socialism. So it, the sort of British incarnation of this is the militant used to have like a list of demands in their newspaper, I think every week. Mm. And it would be nationalisation of the top 100 yeah. companies, <laughs> that kind of thing. But it's really, it's, it's, it's a tragedy because it's, it's really an evidence of the weakness of his thought at that time. It's also the evidence of his personal inability to create any kind of workers' movement. So in the sort of run of the Second World War, he's pushing this idea the the problem is is that it's not there's a way there's two ways this i mean it goes back to the idea of the dialectic but basically there's a tendency when you first start thinking about workers democracy when you first start thinking that workers can rule you just go well the leadership or the top of society doesn't matter at all we can do it all ourselves everything comes from below these things will be produced by themselves there's the sort of converse theory of history, which is, you know, basically, well, you know, if Lenin had lived, maybe the Soviet Union wouldn't have gone so bad, or, you know, the great man theory of history. Whereas this is, the two things interrelate. So what Trotsky's proposing when he talks about the, tra- the transitional demand is presenting the work as, as though you were Moses coming down from Mount, Mount Sinai, just presenting a list of demands and going see the thing is all you have to do is want this and then you're going to get it whereas in reality the 
ways in which Russian society was changed by the two revolutions that we've talked about today, um, those demands emerged from below, but also they were shaped by the sort of Bolshevik and Russian Social Democrat and Labour Party leaders at the time. So there's an interrelation between the top and the bottom. Also, people aren't necessarily going to fight for things that they didn't produce themselves or didn't have any hand in producing. So it's um, it's a sort of weakness in this theory, and it's reproduced in some of the weird uh, sort of branches of Trotskyism that you see today. Now, we'll talk about them in a, yeah. in a little bit later. <laughs> but like with the emergence of, with the clarity that comes to him towards the period of the Second World War, it is obvious to everyone, because basically everywhere is rearming, everywhere is noticed that there is going to be a war. So there's this tremendous mobilisation. And like one of the bits of, Trotsky that I find sort of hardest to put up with, not put up with, sorry, to sort of read emotions-wise, is he's talking about the need for United Front against fascism, the need for worker self-defence. And simply put, he, he says, you need to arm yourselves now. In about 1938, he's like, you need to form a United Front between the two, you know, in most countries, two competing sides of the workers' movement, the communist parties and the labour parties. And you need to arm yourselves, you need to start procuring arms, you need to start cashing arms, you need to do all this. And it wasn't done. It was the greatest potential, you know, missed opportunity in history. It's unbelievably sad to think about what was faced by people in France, Holland, Poland, fucking Denmark, even though that rolled over pretty quick. But all those countries had workers had the self-confidence to arm themselves at those times, history could have been quite different. I mean, it's not... You can never say exactly how it would have been different. And, I mean, like, in Amsterdam, for example, there was, like, a general strike when the Nazis invaded and he was just put down with force of arms. But we'll never know how that would have gotten had Trotsky had more weight, had Trotsky's ideas or Trotsky's faction or people, you know, inspired by Trotsky or just people who hadn't gone through this sort of brutal experience of the workers' movement being set back and set back all through the late 20s and 30s, how they would have reacted to Nazi invasion and occupation or whether the Nazis would have been able to roll over all those countries and enact that enormous genocide that they did. And, I mean, one of the astonishing things is by the beginning of the Second World War, both Trotsky is dead. Well, Trotsky's dead. He's killed by a Spanish gentleman called Ramon Mercada, I think, or mm. Ramon Mercada, um, who goes at him with a letter opener or an ice pick, depending on who you hear. And like, it's a testament to the idea of Trotsky or the way that Trotsky's ideas were conceived of at the time. That the story told about his death is that even though he had this, you know, immediate traumatic brain injury, um, he fought back. He bit. Makada, he, he tried to attack him, he just roared. People were alerted to him and tried to save him, and they couldn't. Yeah, with a, an ice pick in your head. But <laughs> yeah. that, that, that was um, like the second assassin. Well, the, I was going to say assassination yeah. attempt. The first one was they literally. See, he was in this, um, it was called the Blue House, wasn't he? And right. it, was, it was a compound that yeah. was guarded. I was going to say quite well, but obviously not. <laughs> what happened was um, there was a coordinated attack. His bedroom got shot at. His wife, like, courageously put herself on top of him <laughs> to stop any bullets. Bullets going through, like, the walls. His grandchild's in the next yeah. um, 
room over cowering under the bed like, it's like it was... godfather 2 yeah yeah, yeah. Well, godfather yeah. 3 man when you it get the helicopter own. attack i haven't seen three. Oh, that's pretty good no it's not it's um what's it called <laughs> uh andy garcia isn't three isn't it i do not know man oh, sorry right. <laughs> anyway but uh, yeah you know it's just they're you know it's just such an incredible attempt on his life and for him <laughs> to get like killed by a, a nervous he's quite young wasn't he? he was in his 20s i think or... yeah i think it's just like i mean like the thing is with spies and stuff they tend to be quite an odd lot like it doesn't tend to attract the sort of the creep i don't know i suppose like, you could say the cambridge spies were like mm. the sort of creep the crop but like particularly with stalinism i think it's difficult to from a, again from a perspective to understand the sort of moral weight the stalinism had at that time and basically people would do any number of things you want the people who died in the name of stalinism just as freelance agents well, i can't I could, yeah i can't um, remember the name of it but there was um there was a guy knocking around mexico at the time mm. who was like an nkvd uh, agent at the time and i remember reading about him just like he's just like a repulsive <laughs> Like thug Jimmy, you know, who's going yeah. on, oh, just, yeah, just, just yeah, murdering yeah. people. Um, it was just he, really, he was sent down as well to try and take out Trotsky, but it was <laughs> really awful. But and you read about him, you just think he's just like literally just um, a, a, a career scumbag, he's like an enforcer into the cause type, of, like, yeah. Um, but like it was with, just really depressing reading about it, actually. Just like I remember, like with that bit with that particular assassination attempt, I mean, it's just like again, it's one of those things where you, you don't want to sort of read someone's psychological history sort of out of the texts and stuff he obviously you know was able to inspire you know he had friends long-lasting relationships people who followed him and stuff but it's just like i don't get what's going on in your brain in that one he writes an article about that assassination attempt and he says he describes it in that precise details and my grandson was in the other room crying you know someone got shot in the foot and he's just oh, i was dealing with this and then he just goes down in like the next paragraph he's like right what does this tell us about the international situation it's like take a day off and you <laughs> yeah, literally just break, like. someone has tried to kill you but no he just did not take a day off but basically he Incidentally, Steph, just before we forget, did he ever actually attempt any local organisation or stuff in Mexico? I think... I, Too busy uh, shagging Frida Kahlo, wasn't he? I don't, I'd get him, um, man. I'd done, like... The funny thing is, like, was it... I can't remember. Was he, he does, like, those murals, doesn't he? Oh, Frida Diego Kahlo. Rivera. Yeah, Diego yeah. Rivera. And he, like, both of them ended up, like, after the hung around with Trotsky, ended up being, like, hardcore Stalinists. <laughs> they took, like, a complete opposite... Um, Swing, which is pretty good. I it? thought it was Not quite funny with like. Diego Rivera. It's just he'd really welcomed him, was accommodating, and he was living with him for ages. He drove him absolutely everywhere, and he was just uh, just banging his wife. Who, like Trotsky, was. <laughs> Trotsky was banging, yeah, Frida Kahlo behind his. Oh, I didn't know though. Yeah. Well, like um, she did know. that painting of him, didn't she? But at that point, like Frida Kahlo was was just seen as Diego Rivera's kind of. You know, right. so you obviously know, yeah, she wasn't like respect. she wasn't an artist in her own right, right. in a sense. Okay, but yeah, <laughs> like he basically ends his life in this you know farcical but just unbelievably grotesque way and it's like ultimately you've got a what blows my mind about it and like what i can't quite understand is obviously there were there were um other things on stalin's mind just on at the time so basically he's fighting the sec you know or sort of about to begin fighting the second world war and you know, we've got this sort of this one person who has deliberately sequestered themselves as far away from you as they can possibly get, and he was like, 
no, I will get them. That that's impressive in its own sort of oh, sick yeah, way. Yeah, absolutely. But it's also just like incredibly vindictive. Yeah. Oh yeah. But what I can't like get over and what I tried like to not think about too much is that by the time of the end of the Second World War, both Trotsky is dead and also the the culture that produced him is dead. So there's been the the Holocaust. So Nazis have occupied all of that area of Eastern Europe. They've, you know, taken the overwhelming majority of the Jewish population from that area and they've killed them. So in like a very real sense, not only has Trotsky died, but the conditions that produced him have died as well. And it's just unbelievably bleak to imagine. So basically, at this point, Trotskyism goes from strength to strength. <laughs> so yeah, from that point onwards, basically Trotskyism in the West slowly becomes in some parts of the world. I mean, there's particular like anomalies. For instance, Sri Lanka. Sri Lanka has always had a very strong Trotskyist movement, partly because um, they bothered translating some Trotsky works into Tamil and they didn't bother with uh, the Tamil Tigers, Trotsky. It's I don't think that so. That was good no, alliteration, like, wasn't it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, maybe. I don't know. I have to like slowly look it up. I remember like seeing, God, years ago, back in the early days of Facebook, it was like some uh, Sri Lankan communist or tr- Trotskyist organization organized like a bike rally in um, remembrance of Che Guevara. Oh, they were just riding around on their bikes. But no, basically, what happens is because of Trotskyism's focus on workers' democracy. And in particular because of the sort of body of Trotsky's work and also the sort of adherence that he developed and changes in Stalinism. As the Second World War ends, Stalinism is basically one of the dom you know, dominant trends in world thought. But then you've got the occupation and <laughs> subsumption into the Soviet Union of, you know, the Warsaw Pact countries gradually stories begin to emerge or more stories begin to emerge about Stalinist repression. Um, so Trotskyism becomes sort of one of the leading world sort of trends in communism. But even then, it's small as hell. And I mean, in Britain, it's ex- exceptional, but I think partly because the British Communist Party was relatively weak. Is it, yeah, is that, so is it unusually yeah. large in the UK then? I think that so, a tendency? Because yeah. it, it does seem to be everywhere. It's bewildering, but basically, like, the Trotskyist organisations in the UK largely built out of... You obviously had 1956 was the big yeah, black yeah. general Stalinism, so the invasion of Hungary. So that's where the idea, obviously, of the tank tanky comes from. from. Yeah. The tanky is someone supported the Soviet Union in that yeah, period. Because, and that's when Raymond Williams and that left the Communist Party, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah, and it's, it's... I suppose it's partly like a sort of symptom of that quietism that Trotsky hated so much about Britain. The fact that, like, Britain, they had, like, as far as he was concerned, no stomach for, like, the grim realities of politics. So partly because of that, they loved British people, or a significant section of British people, looked to Trotskyism as, like, a more humane form of Marxism. This is obviously... They should read Defence of the Red Terror, like. (laughs) Yeah, just go for it. Terrorism and communism, like, just go for it. Also, like, there were sort of weird sort of regional hubs of it. Liverpool, in particular, Mm. was like a a hub of Trotskyism in, like, the sort of war years and afterwards. 
there was then like this became one of the dominant trends in like academia and things like that but i mean even so i i don't know off the top of my head like the membership numbers for like the communist party in britain at its fall but it was relatively low mm. the sort of slp topped out to ten thousand, and you really have to strain to believe that i think militant claimed to have had that at their height or maybe slightly more maybe fifteen thousand. Militant were like the fourth allegedly the fourth largest political party weren't they <laughs> they were like the good, I don't know, man. I could. It's one of those things I don't want to start getting on to the middle. No, but like, um, but it was, it was, uh, in a way, the sort of way in which comp, um, Trotskyism developed in the UK was kind of an echo of what Trotsky was talking about and what Trotsky despised about Lenin's formulation and what's to be done, which he came to in our political tasks. He was saying. If you allow sort of self-appointed leaders and sort of um, political specialists to take hold, then you will rob in life of its variety, rob in humans of their, you know, mm. multiple qualities, their desires to do different things. Whereas what's always astonishing to me about sort of um, British Trotskyism is the way in which it sort of echoed like like the Trotsky myth itself. So you'd have like this one, you know, uniquely pers- uh, perspicacious, erudite, well-informed person with a complete grasp of the world situation, <laughs> and they would lead your party. So in Milton, they had Ted Grant or mm. whomsoever in the SLP, which I was a member of for some years. Uh, you had Tony Cliff, who's sadly departed, but you had this sort of echo of these the sort of Trotsky cult yeah. in so much as it, the you know, the sort of lay understanding of Trotsky is just like one extremely impressive bloke, which he definitely was. I mean, I wouldn't have talked about him for two hours oh, he was def- if he wasn't. Like, I didn't know but, much about him beforehand, and, uh, but like reading about him, he's just like, this, he's absolutely like a brilliant person in the sense that he's just <laughs> yeah, like, like, like the, the, the grasp of... Yeah, but the, the term brilliant is overused, but he... Brilliant. Yeah, thing. yeah. But like in some instances you're saying like, you know, you overtook Lenin in a lot of things. Well shocking, like, um it's what's what I will never ever like lose from my sort of dalliance with Trotskyism and why I think Trotskyism is important or just thinking through that lens is because it's obsessive focus on the world situation mm. and it's insistence that from you know like, like we said it's biblical the weak should become the strong the meek should inherit the earth the weakest countries can show the way or the weakest you know parts of the world economy can show the way for the rest of us is like a profoundly liberating idea mm-hmm. the other problem is though is that because we were talking about earlier the dual character the idea of permanent revolution you can make these leaps but only with the support of more powerful places more powerful groups more powerful classes more powerful countries then it's it can be like it's it's a sort of dual sort of enabling thing it's, it's also a paralysis but you were you were saying earlier when we were talking off mic that you were stunned by like the presence of Trotskyists in like actual political activity yeah they're everywhere I mean yeah. I, yeah I mean as someone who's never being involved in politics until mm. really recently, you know, it's just been purely theoretical for me. I, I just, you know, the SWP are everywhere, like, <laughs> but they are everywhere. I mean, far. And what what I was going to ask Steph is that um, we know, and if you listen to this podcast from sort of a casual 
observer of like sort of British politics, the term trot mm. is oh, a, yeah, yeah. a particular. <laughs> What's, what's bewildering about it? Sorry, it's just that everyone professes to hate trots, man. Yeah. From like sort of Mike Gapes leftwards. But I think everyone. I think what's them. clear is that for you know the term trot is basically a term of abuse in the Labour mm. Party, and and it I think it essentially means now like, anyone who's left wing, yeah, anyone who's like <laughs> a professor who's socialist, and they've used it to they've argued that you know Jeremy Corbyn was like um put into place by like a coterie of like Trotskyists yeah, yeah, yeah. and the heat like the entryism whatever and funny enough like there's actually when I was doing the reading about this episode there's an there's an episode on Trotskyism on the BBC from 2016 mm. and um I can't remember there's this BBC reporter who says something like you know I think um it's a lady from the SWP was like well the reason Jeremy Corbyn has risen to the top is as risen top of the Labour Party is not through like Trotsky's entry because like there's a tiny amount left yeah. if any and this BBC report was like well I mean I've got to be honest I don't think anyone involved in politics really understands how Jeremy Corbyn's got and he's just like openly admitting like that he hasn't got a clue what's going on <laughs> and like I think it's David Aronovich is like actually presenting he's like yeah well no one knows who could possibly know how it is and yeah. this woman was like well Maybe people are just attracted to your socialism and they're just falling back and it's like this conspiracy theory but well, but it wild, does but but it's rooted in it's rooted and I and the reason I love I like I like militant because how much they upset <laughs> yeah. people and in the Labour Party and, and, like, like, <laughs> and that is the that is the reason I first started to think <laughs> wow if these guys hate them then they must be pretty awesome but um, the reason people are upset. Uh, this legacy of Trotskyism and this, mm. the term Trot gets thrown around now as a term of abuse is because militant, militant tendency, a Trotskyist group essentially began a, a deep um, <laughs> a, a strategy of, of deep entryism into the British yeah, Labour yeah. Party, didn't they? But, well, but that was actually, that is a, did Trotsky advocate entryism as a tactic? There's like, with, with, um, with Lenin and Trotsky, I mean, with the, particular thing you'll hear people on like the labor right and stuff i mean one of the weirdest things i remember reading back when i used to read the newspapers was jack straw wrote in and someone like had written in the independent calling him like an ex-trot and jack straw was like an ex-member of the communist party and he wrote in he said actually i think you'll find us a member of the communist party read um lenin's left-wing communism and infantile yeah. disorder right but basically what Lenin was saying was that we, yeah, like I said, by trying to enter the Labour Party, the idea was the communists would be able to recruit out the Labour Party and also that they would shame the Labour Party into admitting that they didn't believe in this new form of democracy which had just emerged in Russia. Now, with the sort of way in which, in particular in Britain, it's grown, was what would happen was um, that basically every Trotskyist organisation would spend a period, they would follow this example. So they would spend a period of time in the Labour Party, just bumbling about, trying to recruit people, and then just break with the Labour Party and announce that they'd left the Labour Party or that the Labour Party would expel them. That's what happened with the SLP. Um, that's what happened with the militant, obviously. I mean, what's brilliant with the militant is they split into two factions. It was like one faction was like, well, we, we should be like an independent party. And the other was like, no, we should still be in the Labour Party after they've been kicked out. Um, but like, yeah, it's astonishing. Basically, I mean, what I think is valuable about Trotskyism, apart from sort of theoretical insights that I found, that it's something that you will find if you go to, like you're saying, any sort of demonstration. Like I remember going to, you know, like anti-war demonstrations and just 
with like my train spotters knowledge of this stuff just being like oh them 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 spotting the different placards and things but because of the theory of the united front and because they never bought into the idea that sort of stalin would or you know the soviet union would deliver everybody from capitalism because they didn't see the world is broken up into states but into classes that would need to struggle and need to sort of simultaneously break with capitalism they are like surprisingly active they do actually get and i would i hesitate to say get stuff done well, yeah, it's too normative stop, but, like, stop the war you know yeah exactly i mean like <laughs> that's a that's front yeah they, they well it's, might, it's got like, a million people out on the streets it's, it's more than like, Almost everyone else has ever achieved in this country. Not yeah. that they stopped it, but do you well, know like, what I mean? It's a, it's a feat of organisation. I remember, like when I when I joined SRP, I mean, I'm, I'm from uh, I don't know Southwest Wales. I'm just going to try and shade it a bit. I don't know. I'm already give my name, screw it. <laughs> um, but like when I joined, right, there were like two Trotskyists in or like I did, didn't join. I sort of expressed some interest in joining this would be they're like two Trotskyists in my um local area and they were like constantly like in the local names because they were like the first meeting I went to the first political meeting I ever went to was in defense of like a bus route from like one you know area from like um very poor area of the village that I'm from to like the secondary school which was like two miles away and they were but oh, that's too near you, your kids can walk or whatever but they would sort of turn up to these things but they they were like unique in that they would never announce that they were doing they would never be like oh do you want to buy the my drop paper or anything like that they would just turn up and do these political actions which is incredibly impressive but it's like there's this bit I think in Trotsky's autobiography where they just, he's just talking with like um with, some, with like another member of the Social Democratic Party and he's just going oh um, we should really like get amongst the workers and then, like, his mate goes, oh, yeah, I know one, he's a, he's a watchman. He's, like, you know, a watchman, he's in a Bible sect. We should just go and have a chat with him. <laughs> so this idea of, like, this sort of grassroots action. But the problem is, if you do that with this horizon of worldwide revolution, that can become exhausting. It's difficult to sort of balance, like, you know, the local and the global. And the Trotskyism is, like the ultimate example of thinking globally. Because the idea of Trotskyism is you cannot have socialism in one country. You can't even have socialism in a block of countries. I mean, Trotsky at the time of his death still thought that the USSR was, so- was heading towards socialism. He still thought it was superior to the Western countries. Mm. But he, he considered it to be a degenerated worker state. He had, again, and I don't want to sort of harp on that he sort of declined theoretically but he had this idea that it needed a political but not an economic revolution mm. so basically you know the economics was good just like yeah. Homer Simpson with the pig in the barbecue sort of <laughs> flying through the air it's still good it's still, it's still good. good yeah but like you just thought oh no you just need to get rid of the people at the top mm. or you just need to reinstitute workers democracy and you've got the ground set because everything's nationalised whereas if you labour under the idea that you can have a global revolution then the chances are you probably won't see that. You know what I mean? Yeah. If that's it. So it's it's one of those things, I mean, you tend to see Trotskyists and they either tend to be, she's sure seen this, and I I was one myself, so I can say this. You tend to see and they tend, tend to either be sort of like 20, 25 years old or like 60 years old. It's mm. like the people who are like in there, for, been there for the long haul. Yeah. Or like people yeah. who are like in their early 20s and they go, right, global revolution now and then... Like myself, you know, some outrage happens in the political party you're a member of, like it did with me in the SLP. Or you just get a job or you get tired. And you're just like, well, I can't possibly labour under this apprehension that I'm going to see a global revolution. 
that was just unbelievably comprehensive, mind blowing. Honestly, for me, I thought it was. I was just being wrapped the entire time. So, so grateful for having you on, mate. And um, and I'm sorry that it's taken so long for us to get on because you're. I'm sure, I'd hate to think how long ago we've been talking about having you on the podcast. I mean, it's, it's, it's definitely the about a year, I think, isn't it? So, um, sorry, so yeah. you're a very tolerant and patient man as well as being extreme, um, extremely knowledgeable. Yeah, extremely yeah. knowledgeable uh, and erudite. Um, so thank you so much. Uh, are there any shout-outs? And all um, beefs. And all, like, beefs or criticism of people who would oh. like to... Um, oh, the beefs. Yeah. Um, so yeah, many. reel them off, man. The beefs, man. So many beefs. <laughs> Um, no, well, shout out the main one we read to my brother, um, who encouraged me to listen to this. It was like one one of those things. Got like an allergy to hearing my own accent, I think. Even so, it's like oh, it's Welsh podcast. I was like oh, I can't possibly listen to this. <laughs> <laughs> Vomit inducing. Yeah, like. yeah. So him above all, um, my family in general, uh, various Trotskyists that I knew in the past. I won't name them. And I've just realised that I've nearly outed them by saying that. So, basically, Leon Trotsky himself, because I think he was quite good. The old good. man. The old yeah. great man. I think he wasn't too bad. Um, what, what are your favourite works by Trotsky? Just, just, you, just the, the for people who are listening. Yeah, the autobiography is really, really good. That's the main one to read. Like, like things like Results and Prospects get a bit too much into the weeds. But, like, he's, he's more lyrical stuff. I mean, um, my life is amazing basically fascism and how to fight it, I think it's published under, in some territories or in some editions. Basically, the Deutsche Trilogy, which I think we talked about before, yeah. but it's, it's really, really impressive. And it's like a work by somebody who was a Trotskyist at the time, but it's quite clear-eyed, quite clear-eyed on it. Also, if you can, if you go on the Marxist archives, the archives of his speeches from when he started to lose his popularity and just how much he's prepared to rile up a room of people who disagree <laughs> is one of the like great joys of reading. But he's just he is like it takes a while to get a year to it, but he's just got a remarkable style. So it's like it's genuinely funny, but it's just, you know, you have to do a lot of background reading and like the knowledge of Russian revolutionary politics, who he hates that week. He's just a very angry man and a very funny man, mm. and I think you should read him. But yeah, my brother's the main shout out. Also, uh, Maggie instant noodles because they make the best instant noodles. Oh, well. there you go, cookery tip as well. Yeah. Um, show us me family as ever. Uh, also, rest in peace, Emmanuel Wallerstein, someone who a great theoretician who I admire. And um, actually, I don't know if he was Trotskyist, but you know, writing world systems theory was a was a great, phenomenal theoretician that you should also read. And that's it, Nath. Um, shout out to me, Standard, uh, another great man, Kurt Russell. Um, Nintendo, because uh, they released an emulator of the SNES. What? Yeah, so I've just been uh, in between trying to read as much Trotsky as I could. Cause I, like as you mentioned, the Deutsche. Um, I, I'm almost finished the first, the first um, part of the trilogy, but I would have been able to had had I not been playing loads of Zelda. There you go. Yeah. So uh, bit of honesty. Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm an honest <laughs> person. So. And I'd like to give a shout out to Martin Smithman who lent me Trotsky's autobiography, which I didn't read. Oh yeah, in terms of our smooth outro, don't forget to follow us guys on at on Twitter at Desolation Wales. We've just releasing some T shirts, uh, new ones with um an armed dragon on the back, which are selling really well, limited limited run. So we've got get, about, get them while you can and then stick them on yeah. eBay for you know because you'll get loads Increased loads market, from them. Yeah. Like, yeah. Um, we're buying our own stock back at yeah. a, a ridiculous price. Thanks for listening. 
yeah. we're trying to organize some live events so again keep um keep a lookout from online so love you all goodbye all right. thanks bye, bye. like simplicity, analyze, distinguish. It's a question of precision. Of will. Life is complex, but in the end, it's simple.